live from the 49th state, Jeff and Marcy Larson join us to talk about being the first modern craft brewery in Alaska, the reason why Alaskan Amber is their flagship, and discuss all the ways that Alaskan Brewing is the leaders in sustainability from what they do with their CO2, spent grain, and more. We learn about some Alaskan laws and wildlife they've encountered at the brewery, and we discuss distribution, trends, and what the next 40 years of Alaskan brewing will hold. Whether your beer is in a bottle, can, or glass, kick back and relax. It's Better on Draft. Welcome, everybody. Episode 324 of the Better on Draft podcast. My name is Ken. Thank you so much for joining us. I truly appreciate it. We are back after being off for a week, and we are excited as we have one of my favorite breweries uh, to introduce. But first, let's go over all the hosts. We have Wendy. Wendy, uh, what are you drinking over there? I am drinking one of my go-tos, the Alaskan Husky IPA. <laughs> and uh, Dan, what do you got over there? Going hard with this Rochester Mills peanut butter cup milkshake stout. We, uh, we we definitely bought many cases of those beers uh, when you were in town last week for the low or two weeks ago for the Loaded Dice Show. Uh, we do have a guest host today. Uh, Rob, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us uh, a little bit about yourself and, of course, what you're drinking. Hi, I'm Rob. I live in Indianapolis, which is a surprisingly underrated but great beer city. Uh, and I am drinking a wonderful tax ban brew, the Peach Brandy Barrel Exemption. And for myself, I am drinking the Alaskan Amber, and I am swinging it down with the Alaskan Pilsner, enjoying both. So our guest in studio today, all the way from Juneau, Alaska, we have Marcy and Jeff Larson. Why don't you guys introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about yourself, and of course, what you're drinking tonight. I'll go first. I'm Marcy Larson, married to this guy who came up with the great idea to start a brewery a bazillion years ago. And made it work, and he's been a great business partner and fun guy and super great chef on top of being a good brewer. So uh, I get to do a lot of the pickup work. Uh, I do the paperwork. I keep him organized and on track. Um, so that's pretty much my role, and yeah, happy and, to be here. Yeah, and uh, well, I, I was fortunate enough to uh, meet Marcy in Montana as I was trying to hitchhike to Alaska. Didn't make it the first time, uh, and uh, but she was... Uh, doing the books at the Glacier National Park in the evening, and I'd cook her breakfast at 4 a.m. I was the shorter to cook, and I went back to get my degree in chemical engineering, and lo and behold, she got to Alaska before me, and I had to follow her. I didn't take the hint. I had to move from the East Coast to Alaska to the disappointment of every single man in a small town called Gustavus, Alaska. Um, I wasn't really very well accepted at the time when I arrived. She was one of only two single women in the town. So um, they say the odds are good for women in Alaska, but the, the goods, goods are, are yeah, <laughs> odds are good, but the goods are odd. <laughs> well, I want to start off as a lot of people who listen to this show know uh, you guys make my favorite style of beer, which is an alt beer, um, alt style ale uh, that you guys currently make, which is your Alaskan Amber. Um, what was the theory behind um, you know, putting all your eggs behind the Alaskan amber, like why, why an amber and not a lager? Um, I know it was uh, some, you know, a couple decades ago that you started. So IPAs weren't necessarily crazy, um, but why necessarily an amber or an alt style? Animal? 
You're making me thirsty. I, I have to pour a beer. I'm sorry. <laughs> go for it. Go for it. It's the amber. Yes, go for it. When we uh, when we were looking at the you know the the uh, platform of being able to sit there and uh, talk about beer and try to make people understand what the unique characters of beer can give a, an individual as far as flavor. Uh, one of the things that we knew we wanted to do is talk a little bit about the history of brewing in Alaska, because brewing has been historically significant anywhere in the world. Um, the thing though, though, that was interesting is when we did the research to be able to put a lot of the memorabilia about um, the brewing scene in Alaska, obviously way before prohibition turn of the century, uh, we found a lot of information and Marcy was an avid collector of, of threads of information and, and, uh, uh, advertising materials. And we ended up finding, uh, a collector who had a lot of very pertinent information. It was pure accidental, but the way it all worked out is the Amber is actually based off of a gold rush uh, era recipe from the Douglas City Brewing Company, which, which is just the island across from Juneau here. So um, it made sense. It was a, a local brew come alive again. Uh, we were able to homebrew as close to it as we thought was the, the brew that they did back then, which had some unique characters to it. But it tasted awesome. And it was like, well, why not do something historical and good? That, that has double double whammy for us. So the recreation of, of Alaskan amber really has to do with a throwback of, of what was maybe being consumed 100 years ago. Obviously, we didn't have the yeast of 100 years ago, but there were interviews of the brewers' challenges that came to light. And one of them is the fact that it was a very cold environment here in Alaska. And, and even though the only yeasts available here were the ale yeasts, it was a cold fermentation that really has kind of dominated uh, the, the approach we had to making this beer. And alt, obviously, is the German word for old. The old way of making ales, cooler fermentation, that really was the lead-in to this, this, this beer, coupled with the fact that the brewer was from the old world, and he was getting his hops from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Now, keep in mind, this is pre-World War I. I'm not into history to the point where I can really give you the, the nuts and bolts of it. But what we ended up having to do is find these hops at the time called Bohemian hops, which now are sauce. And we were buying these hops from at the time when we started in 1986 from the Czechoslovakian uh, Iron Curtain venue. And and. And even though that sounds really complicated, I can't imagine what the, the brewer did back in 1907 to get hops from that era area to the last frontier. Uh, but you, you asked about the Alaskan Amber. That really is, is many things that, that we like to embrace. One, colder fermentation. That's a, a much more uh, subtle expression of the yeast. It, it exemplifies maybe some of the more subtle characters of malt. And then the rarity of the hops back turn of the century meant that the brewer was using them only to balance the malty characters. So really the amber has much more of a malt kind of presence. But the image on the label is of, I don't know if you can see it, it's of a, of a fisherman. Fishing boat. It's a fishing boat. You got it. And, you know, in many ways I would say that really kind of epitomizes a little bit of that crazy frontier spirit 
what the hell were you thinking starting a brewery in Alaska? Well, I think it's that's the bit of what we 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 embrace. We're we're dominated by where we live, and that has made us do what we do. And the amber is one of those examples. Well, my follow-up question is a little bit more into the the beer and the style because amber sells, but alt beer doesn't. Um, so I guess what was the choice of calling it an amber, and why do you think even in 2023 that we still fear using the names like alt or ESB or something else like that? That's a good, you know, that's a that's a good consumer question for sure because we have a we had a wonderful ESB that we love that we produced back when it won a lot of awards. But you're right, people were scared of a bitter scared of ESB and that kind of just vanished on us. It was a bummer. Yeah. Um, the, naming it the Amber though was, I don't think we really thought about it that much to be quite honest. Um, we just were putting out in the, back in those days, uh, the, the choices were pretty limited. There were less than a hundred breweries. So we didn't have a lot of choices of different styles and, 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 and you just wanted to relate to people who didn't, that craft brew wasn't even a thing. It was just, uh, you know, what are you making and how can you describe it? Can you have that? That's a really interesting question because I would answer it in like almost a two dimensional way. Not to say it's simple, but the dimensions of the past when we started in 1986, the craft brew scene was was at its infancy. There wasn't really a lot of awareness. And our consumers in Alaska really had, you know, maybe in some ways, some more uh, cosmopolitan characteristics because we always had to travel. But at the same time, we were a little bit more homegrown. So um, style specificity in, in the early days, you know, the vanguards of like the Michael Jacksons of the world and the like that wrote about beer, not with the sequin glove, but with the, with the uh, <laughs> golden pen. Um, really, when you talked about uh, those type of stylistic specificities, it went over a lot of people's heads. And I think at the time, really what we wanted people to do is, is accept the beer for it and not tell people what they were going to taste. Let them make their own designation. Now, fast forward, when I say two dimensions, I don't mean in Euclidean geometry terms of just two dimensions, X and Y. I'm referring to today when we start looking at stylistic designations, there's an attempt to use them to inform the consumer but let's face it, when you start talking about uh, black IPAs, uh, you're, you're talking about the oxymoron of oxymorons. Uh, these black IPAs are using American hops. They're not from India and they're not pale. And by gum, I bet you there's a black IPA lager. And at the end of the day, I think the idea of, of descriptors it has, it has morphed a bit to try to help people guide, guide them into the flavor journey that we all embrace and love. But I think it's different now. And with the variety and spectrum of, of flavors that are out there, really in some ways, it we, we, we sometimes will cloud the real issue of enjoying a beer because it happens to appeal to you personally with maybe way too much specificity. The monikers, the, uh, the, 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 the classic styles, those are great guideposts because they're classic because they survived the tests of time. But today, uh, 
It's just a set of vocabulary type terms to help the consumer navigate the way of their own personal hedonistic pleasure. That makes sense. No. <laughs> You're speechless. Man, this is crazy. What the heck? No, I podcasts I... and usually there's lots of jabber and I don't I I there was dead air there. That that's it's one of those times, Jeff. I, I tell you what, and a lot of people have seen it on this show when I'm very enamored with what the guest is saying that I'm just lost in your words that I don't I'm not <laughs> I'm not thinking to respond. I'm just listening to what you're saying because you have a lot of great insight. Um, but that, that was the, the few questions that I wanted to ask before I pass it off to Wendy. So Wendy, uh, good luck. What do you got for Jeff? (laughs) So I have a million questions. Actually, I got the opportunity to visit your brewery back in 2019 when I was on a cruise. Um, it, I actually thought it was really funny because I was during my research, there was a video that you guys had and you were talking about what it was like to be in Alaska and where you are. And one of the people said, well, you got to like the rain. It rains a lot here. And it did. It poured the entire time I was in Juneau, but we really enjoyed your visiting your brewery. Um, Actually so much so that I kind of use it as a baseline to when I am evaluating other breweries that I visit. Um, I, I know that we will have a lot of questions about sustainability and, Um, the innovative things that you guys have done to succeed as you have where you're at. Um, But one of the things that I don't think a lot of people realize is how much of a charitable giving program you guys have at Alaskan. So um, I just kind of wanted to ask about that and ask how important is it to you as a business owner to have that impact, not just in your community, but pretty much anywhere you can get your beer. Well, that's kind of, you know, that really that started because we're in Alaska and Alaskans just do that. I mean, we're small enough that we're able to help out our neighbor. We're able to, um, if there's a, a boat in a boat at all in distress or adrift, we go get it. You know, I mean, we're Alaskans do kind of rally and look for each other all the time. So it's kind of a, a way it's a way of life, really. Yeah, it's a mindset. A it's a mindset. There's so stuff, giving yeah. is definitely has always been really something that we always intended to do. In the early days, you know, we were like a sneeze away from going bankrupt. So, you know, that you, you couldn't do too much, but you could always give effort, even if you couldn't give monetarily. And so we've just kind of built built the brewery around that. Our brew crew, if you were in the, if you were at the brewery, then you know our brew crew, everybody. Even in the tasting room, the tip jar is dedicated to a nonprofit. Nobody keeps their tips. All the tips go into that tip jar, and that goes to a nonprofit that the, the crew vote on each year to nominate one, one specific nonprofit that receives all of those tips. We do other things, too, but that one gets all of the tip jar, which is kind of fun. And that generated from, from everybody who works here. It's, it wasn't our idea. It was everybody. So, I mean, it it really is kind of a, a way of, of life for us. I mean, over in in uh, the Midwest, we're doing stuff all the time with various charities, and we have donation pages. And, I mean, there is a lot of need, unfortunately. There's a whole lot of need. So wherever we can help that makes sense, we, we don't, unfortunately, even though we're very family-oriented, we don't donate to kids stuff because 
of our alcohol bent. And so that's something we promised the folks at the alcohol awareness group up here that we wouldn't do. So we stay out of uh, young underage stuff, but adult stuff, um, the Husky, you had the Husky there. We do pints for paws and tails for tails and all kinds of yep. stuff with that. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, Marcy, you hit on something that's interesting. And I think, and I would say it's, it's, it's in other places, but maybe less obvious, but there are certain things that, uh, you know, in, in Fairbanks, Alaska, and when it gets to be really cold, um, it's, it's a crime to pass somebody who's hitchhiked. Because it's so cold, that person is in distress. Right. And, and even though that, that, that kind of clouds the, the intent of, of, of altruism and the like, but I would have to say uh, when I first moved up to Alaska, I was following Marcy, went into that small little town, and there were only 90 people at, in, in the town. And not that everyone got along. In fact, there was probably some really divisive issues, whether they per, be personal or Whatever doesn't or, or religious doesn't matter. But when we, we would have a, a gathering, everybody was invited. I mean, and so this is a town of ninety people, and so somebody would host this this gathering of ninety people, and lo and behold, if somebody did not show up, somebody in the in the in the in the gathering would be tasked to stop by their cabin and make sure they were okay. So because this town was remote, so there was this is before cell phones, this is before communication linkages. Somebody really had to stop by the cabin just to make sure that they weren't hurt. That's, I think, again, that kind of epitomizes that that feeling of intimacy and community um, that gets driven home all the time. So when we start talking about um, uh, that sort of feeling um, towards others. You know, I know that that's pervasive in many different enclaves, but I'd say it's especially especially prevalent here in the largest state of the union with, if not the smallest, one of the smallest populations. Uh, that answers your question. It does. So uh, why, why Alaska? <laughs> oh, my we God. We love the outdoors. Yeah. We love the adventure. Um, we're both from the East Coast. And uh, in between college years, we're spending our summers working out west at national parks because we love outdoors. And it was a job that paid enough to pay the college bill back then. <laughs> so, um, uh, And I, I actually was the one who saw pictures of Glacier Bay over here near Gustavus, which is where Jeff is referring to, which is very close to Juneau. And uh, I just went, whoa, we got to go check this out. So I came up. And worked a summer, fell totally in love with the with the outdoors, and that's kind of what gets you. If you like the outdoors, the scenery here is breathtaking. It's dynamic. There is so much going on. I mean, right here in our little town, you know, here of thirty thousand in Juneau, we're on the salt water, but we're right by glaciers. We're right by a rain. We're right in the midst of a rainforest. Um, we, we have, have the fifth fishing. largest ice field in North America, so you can you can hella ski any any day of the year. You can ice climb. You can go Just fishing. So There's so much here. Um, but you know that's one thing that I, I I have to admit when I left friends and family down the lower 48 to come up here, there was many 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 years where they would ask, you know, well when are you going to come back? Uh, 
When, when are you going to be over this phase? Those are, ter- those are terminologies they use. Our parents would say, when yeah, is yeah. this phase over? Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, is that I would have to say that there's no question. Beauty is that first uh, hook of interest uh, that, uh, again, appeal of the natural wonders, the, uh, the awe-inspiring uh, vistas and, so- and experiences. But when it came down to it, I would also say that there was a shared – uh, vibe with the people that also are here for the same reason, because there, there there's definitely reasons to leave, whether it be the rain or or lack of family that or you lack left of behind. Sunshine or, and or, right, <laughs> but I have to say that that uh, that shared appreciation, and then also I'd say a, a fair amount of the fact that you are leaving maybe sometimes lots of your friends and family behind opens your own uh, psyche to accepting new friends and new family. And I'd say that's what really was amazing is that after about five years, I didn't talk about the whales and the bears and the beautiful Northern lights as much as I talked about the people. And the people are genuinely nice, genuinely nice. And they're also crazy as heck. <laughs> so they're not boring. Wacko sometimes. They're, multi, they're multi-talented. Usually they do more oh, than yeah. more than two or three things. And I mean, every time I turn around, it's like, wow, you can do that too. So it's it's a pretty amazing place. We love the people and, and love it up here. And they think gotta stay. Gustavus is a small town, so I had to uh move to Juneau. And so and I'm getting thirsty. So he's going to so, pop the Juno juice. I don't know if you guys have Juno juice. I'm going to have a Juno juice. I have one of those to drink next. Uh, <laughs> it's delicious. I love it. So right. I ask about that because I have found that when people ask me about my favorite place to visit, I always say, if you can go to Alaska, go, because it was so amazing. I can't wait to go back. Um, and one of the things that I noticed on your website is that there is a... Um, Drink Alaskan Travel Juno sweepstakes that is still open right now. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I I can. That's a thing, uh, a program that we're running uh, in conjunction with the Juno Travel Industry folks that are uh, inviting people to come up and enter in this sweepstakes to showcase what Juno has to offer. And so they approached us and asked if we would do a program to promote Juno and invite people to come take part in this incredible getaway adventure, which has some amazing things on it. The only thing is, is it's illegal in Michigan. We can't run that program there. You guys have really crazy laws in Michigan. So sorry. Yes. about that. <laughs> But outside others, other states can, and we are running it in uh, a number of states where um, you enter to win and it's in a drawing kind of a thing, but some folks are going to get some really cool adventures. Yes, I was looking at all of the stuff that they can do, and I'm like, oh, man, that's like half the stuff I wanted to do. And I only had like three days, so I didn't get to do all of it. I'm like, oh, I got to go back. Um, (laughs) There you go. So uh, I want to go back a little bit to touch on um, some of the things that you guys have done to um, focus on or kind of not focus. um, 
work around some of the challenges that you guys have being in a landlocked situation. Um, and I had seen an article where you had said, we think out, we live outside of the box, so we have to think outside of the box or something along those lines. Um, what is that mentality done to help with facing those challenges? Well, I could give two examples, one of which that probably is fairly well known is we were the first craft brewery to capture our CO2 from fermentation uh, and purify it and use it within operations. Carbon dioxide is a very important um, gas that's used to purge out bottles, cans, kegs of, of tanks. air, tanks, so that you can make the beer and not have it oxidized and, and you can extend its life. But carbon dioxide typically comes from uh, burning fossil fuels and then purifying the carbon dioxide so that it can be used for food grade applications. But here in Alaska, we were off the beaten path. So it's interesting that, that sometimes, like I said before, our location really uh, inspired us to think differently because we couldn't just call up and have somebody come in with a tanker of carbon dioxide and deliver it like they would in any other place that's connected to the road system. We're not connected to the road system. So, as you know. <laughs> so the challenges that that created also made us think, okay, what else can we do? And so that's an example of what we ended up doing very, very early on in our, our history. We started collecting all the carbon dioxide from fermentation. And obviously the barley malt that creates the food and sugars for yeast fermentation is actually from the carbon dioxide from the air, not from sequestered carbon sources like fossil fuels. And I think that's an obvious one that, that we, we, we had. But again, I, I think it's interesting because those challenges are, are an analogous to many challenges that people have um, in their daily lives. I don't care whether it be um, uh, the type of, of, of apparel you wear in a very wet environment. It's not your typical cotton stuff. You, you, you want to look good, but you also want to feel good. But guess what? That means you, you change the way you approach to your environment. That's the same thing we did with carbon dioxide. But let me go really geeky on you. I don't know if you can take it. Cut me off if I do. But um, Bring it on, Jeff. Okay. Well, here. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Um, <laughs> the deep dive. You know, um, that that pervasive thinking differently really, I think, epitomizes all of us. But it really, I think, hits home and gets emphasized. And one example I would give is our lab group who, you know, they're doing all the microbiology of, of operations and stuff. There's one compound that we all despise. It, and I'm a chemical engineer, so I've read lots of material handle, handling data sheets. And this material that was used in the laboratory only to suppress yeast growth so that you can get an idea of maybe other, other microbes that are uh, out there. Um, it's called actodione, um, and it, it is awful. Our crew just, uh, it's like, God, we got to find something different. So we ended up proposing to the American Society of Brewers Chemists brewing chemists, a different compound, a compound that's called niastatin, but it's used for um, yeast infections, for human consumption. It's a compound that is consumed by humans. 
And it does the same thing as actodione. Um, and we started doing the research and we proposed to the American Society of Brewing Chemists an alternative. And after about two sessions, we ended up getting a focus group. We had a number of collaborative uh, large breweries participate. And now it's an accepted process that the American Society of Brewing Chemists allows to be used as a standard to replace this obnoxious compound. Well, we thought outside the box, but we all do that all the time. When you're thinking that way, you all of a sudden, okay, this is the standard, but is there something that we can do better? And, and at the end of the day, the American Society of Brewing Chemists accepted it. Uh, the European uh, Brewing Congress adopted it and the Japanese Brewing Congress adopted it. We impacted the entire world's lab safety because we thought differently. That's crazy. <laughs> we're, we're, we're a tiny little brewery in Juneau, Alaska, drinking uh, Juneau juice once in a while. But man, oh man, <laughs> it's that juice. It's that creativity. It's that actual uh, thinking differently that I think I get reminded at. Uh, reminded of uh, what makes uh, life here in the last frontier so cool. That is awesome. I have a million more questions that I could ask, but I know my co-hosts also have some questions they'd like to ask. So I'm going to pass it over to Rob. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to start with a very selfish question and lead it with, uh, I've got a very good friend. He used to be my neighbor, but had to move. Um, who? It, lived in Juneau, grew up in Juneau, uh, was sad that he ended up living in Indiana and always talks about, you know, his time in Juneau. And he, he actually was just back there until last week. Um, anyway, he had the same question. He has always brought me Alaskan beer when he comes back. <laughs> you do not distribute to Indiana yet. <laughs> Is it coming anytime soon? <laughs> right now I have to go to Michigan yeah, or Ohio. <laughs> we are in Ohio. We did make it that you are in Ohio. That's a that's an easy drive for me. <laughs> so so twenty five states. We're in twenty five. We're halfway. We're slowly making our way across. But you know, we ran into we ran into COVID, and we ran into freight rates, and we ran into supply chain stuff. That the the freight prices just went through the roof, and so you, you don't want to pay that much for our beer, and we don't want to charge you that much for our beer. So we are waiting a little bit to let those freight rates go back down, which we think they will. It's not going to be a forever thing. And it's already starting to get better than what it was. So um, we'll be working back on that again uh, as we go forward. But uh, that definitely knocked us for a loop. That took a little bit of a punch and, and just added too much of a price tag on it. Okay. That's good to hear. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I've, I've waited this long, so that's good to hear. <laughs> Who knows? It may be by drone delivery. We'll have to see. <laughs> That's right. um, so one of the things I quite enjoy when he comes back is he spends actually a lot of time in your brewery with his with his mom and uh, but he would always talk about the brew the the crew brews that he tried that time and he always yeah. brings whatever pilot beers he can bring back um, and so yeah. how yeah. how is that system working like um, are these beers getting tried and promoted or or how does that work? I'll, I can talk a little bit about yeah. that because I think it's really cool because I'm not a brewer. I'm, I'm the one who, you know, does paperwork and picks up after everybody and stuff and does that end of it. But I don't actually brew. But I always want to brew. You know, I always wanted 
you know, try little things and stuff. And at the brewery, anybody who works here is allowed to play on our one barrel system. So we have a little one barrel system here. In fact, it's right behind us here. And you just have to match it up, match up with a brewer who knows what they're doing. And then you collaborate and you come up with whatever recipe you want to come up with and you brew it. And then I would say probably 50% of those go down the drain, but 50% maybe go in our break room. And in our break room, our crew samples and makes notes and stuff. And um, we, we have something called a shifty. At the end of every shift, we get a beer. And so that's our shifty. And if, if your brew is a popular shifty, then you have to, in order for it to continue, you have to go back and do it again. So it isn't a one-off wonder. It's got to be repeatable. So if you can repeat it and it still is popular, then it goes into the tasting room for the consumer to sample where your friend got the chance to have it. As a crew brew. As, as a crew brew. And, and there it gets public opinion outside the brewery and from all, all different folks, and it gets evaluated. And yes, a lot of those brews do end up either in our pilot series or in our uh, limited releases, and sometimes in our full-time. That's how Husky got there. Mm-hmm. That's how White was started. So there's a number of brews that came through that way. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing we do, too, is we have a one-barrel system, a 10-barrel system. The 10-barrel is the one we started with. And that's the one we do the crew brews in after it, after you do it twice, you know, then you, then you scale it up to a 10 barrel and then that goes around for the public. And then if it's good enough through that, then it goes to our hundred barrel system. So we have the three different systems. Yeah. And we didn't, we didn't buy them in the right order. No, we, uh, we started with a 10 barrel system and then we got the hundred barrel system. And then we were doing all our play brews on 10 barrels. It's really tough to dump. 50% 50% of your 10 barrel brew. So, so one barrel is a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's, that's it, it, I think, also kind of gives everyone a grounding in, in the the uh, focus on flavor, focus on uh, the process. Yeah. And, uh, and, 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 the and, the, and the teams are not just necessarily focused on, focused from one department. There really is a cross-departmental uh, approach. Um and so, obviously, it's as we all know, uh, you know, there are some glory hounds in in the worlds of any particular discipline, but the glory hounds are important. But all the support behind those glory hounds really account for way more than fifty percent, way more than seventy five percent of 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 the real what work. Yeah. Uh, the old adage: one percent inspiration, ninety nine percent perspiration. So everyone knowing what's involved finally to get the end product consistently is uh, kind of the the little bit of the icing on the cake uh, of that whole process. But the real meat of the cake is the fact that we can put out beers that we really feel good about and tested and uh, vetted when they get out to the, the consumer. That, uh, that reminds me a lot of uh, New Glarus, another husband and wife team uh, brewery where all of their employees get trained to be tasters of the product and they get to try it at the different stages and all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. We have, we have uh, taste panels that we run at 10 o'clock in the morning and we rotate through it. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's fun. It's really amazing. You learn a lot, but you can't drink coffee until 10 and that or after the taste panel. And that's really a, a detriment sometimes. <laughs> <That's>, 
Um, so I, I'm thinking back to a couple of the beers I've uh, had brought back for me that have been wonderful. And you've used interesting ingredients like spruce tips and birch syrup and alderwood. Um, well, especially the smoked alderwood. Um, or do you have any other local flavors you're looking at or, or things that I maybe not have gotten to try yet? Oh boy. Yes. Yes. And you know, um, but you know, you, you hit on some, I think really neat, iconic, um, signature product raw materials that we, we really enjoy the story. So like for the spruce tip, I'll just kind of digress. I'm not going to answer your question directly, which is my prerogative, not necessarily what you want to hear, but you know, um, Captain Cook, in 1778, on his second voyage, looking for the Northwest Passage, which now does exist, regrettably, but um, he was looking for it. But he was well known as a brewer on board. But as importantly, he was well known for the health of his crew because he really did search out local in, local foods to augment the, the seafaring uh, larders that were, you know, basically salted meat and no vegetables, no, no fruits. He searched out uh, the local ingredients, but he was also known as a great brewer on board. And one of the local ingredients they used in brewing was uh, spruce. And uh, he was not always successful in making great beers, probably much like our, our, you know, our brewing sometimes here, we have to have to dump, have to dump a few, but (laughs) But he used spruce and he made references, 14 references in his journals having to do with making beer with spruce, sometimes spruce boughs. But he said specifically the spruce, the new growth spruce was especially uh, appealing to his crew. And and I'd have to say that 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 historical significance is grounded in in, in real scientific significance, because we we did some uh, oil fractioning uh, studies and found that the noble hops of, uh, of uh, the brewing world had specific fractions that I, uh, were identical to the fractioning of spruce tips. Most people think of spruce as a pitchy, piney, kind of like evergreen, which it is. But the new growth is the new, new sap runnings, much like uh, whether it be maple syrup or birch syrup. That new runnings is high in sugar and actually has a very low comp- component of some of those terpenes and the like. As it grows older, it does get that turpentine, turpentine-like character. But really what it has is a real almost berry-like, fruit-like character. Citrusy. It's beautiful. And he used it. And so we tried to sit there and kind of really take the inspiration of the past as a way of expressing today what was appealing to people Centuries ago, you know what? There isn't that much difference with the same products that could be appealed to those taste sensibilities of today. So anyway, that was a little bit of a departure. Sorry about going off on that. Well, but we're, yes. using, we're using spruce in a whole bunch of different ways that we never thought we would. So, right. I mean, it's, it's, we're, we're hoping we can turn it almost into a small cottage industry of its own which would be really awesome and support the folks out in the rural communities that are picking and processing these forests. Because it's a renewable, re- renewable resource. resource. We're in the yeah. largest national forest in the United States. And basically um, we have that right there and it's not doing anything but pruning the trees, which allows the, the 
spring essence to fortify the, the the real core of that that botanical. So it's not hurting the plant; it's actually maybe enhancing the plant, but at the same time, pre- creating something that's you, you know usable. But um, you know, we've used uh, other woods, um, red cedar. Um, so that's the one that you didn't mention. Um, you know, you look at uh, the use of woods in in many products, whether it be you know oak in in the making of certain beverages, or or like you said, the alder, which is what we use traditionally as a hardwood that makes the uh, the dry environment for preserving meats and fish, smoked uh, fish. We use the alder as a heat source to smoke some malt, but actually roast the malt. That's what makes smoked porter a, uh, a uh, uh, I think, one of those first exposés of, of departing from the norm that we uh, did back in, in 1988. Um, smoked beers weren't even on the horizon in the U.S. There were a few enclaves in Bamberg, Germany, um, and the smoked beers really made a lot of sense to us because the old brewers in, in Alaska had to roast their own grains. Porters were very, very prevalent in Alaska in the early 1900s, late 1800s. By that same time on the East Coast, the, the, the pale pilsners and lagers were taking over, but the West was a holdout. And so the idea of a, of a dark beer was not unusual. And the idea of, of roasting grains to create that, you know, quite frankly, all grains were directly associated with the heat source. And so when you think about back in 1900 in, in Juneau, Alaska, if you walked down any street, what did you smell? You smelled smoke. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everybody was heating their homes that way. Barbecue? What there was no smell? such thing as barbecue in, in Juneau, Alaska in 1900. Everything was barbecued. <laughs> Everything was cooked on wood. And guess what? A little bit of smoke in your porter was standard. Mm. Well, we love it. It was a it was a fun recreation to come back with that and uh, be able to produce this. Uh, the smoke porter's been just. I did, we just popped the bottle because we couldn't stand it. And, uh, <laughs> But, but to your point, you know, we, we go back to and there's the, the thread that I like about our conversation is, is that there it's all integrated in what we do is, is about where we're from and what we are is dictated by the environment. And so being stewards of the environment is sometimes due to necessity, but sometimes it's due to your ethic allegiance to why we're here. We love where we live. It's absolutely gorgeous, but it's also real fragile. Our growing seasons are very small and short. And so when we've hiked in the Arctic, um, those footprints last a long time in the Arctic tundra. A lot longer than most other places. And it really gives you a sense of responsibility, awe, because when you make those footprints, no one else's are there, but also a sense of, Oh my goodness! How, how do you how do you preserve this? How do you nurture this? And how do you take care of it? And the spruce tips has been a great example of having that is not hurting the trees at all, and it's helping growing 
seasons and everything. So it's definitely a renewable resource that's going to be, we hope, will be a good solid industry down the road. Well, we also you. have berries. The other thing is berries, too. Oh, yeah. That's what we didn't mention. But there, we have berries. We have, you know, plants. We have spruce tips. We have wood. There's a lot of things up here that we play around with. Well, thank you. I am going to let Dan get a question or two in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Excellent. I'm going to go back to, you know, just brewing in general in Juneau. Um, I couldn't find the answer to this. Are, is all of your beer that's distributed made at your brewery or is it contracted out? Right here. Everything everything that has Alaskan Brewing Company on it is made in Juneau, Alaska. Excellent. So, so know, going back go to the Indiana question, that's really, you know, it, 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 it's all about transportation and that, that challenge. But, yeah, sorry about that. Didn't mean to interrupt you, Dan. No, no problem at all. Go ahead and tell us about the challenges you have with shipping. Like you mentioned, you're not connected to the roads where you're at. It's a really unique area. Um, talk to us about how you get this beer halfway across the country. Yeah, well, I, I have to say when you when you talk about the dry, um, uninteresting reality of of how do you make beer and then keep on making beer? How do you make it sustainable? You know, there's a sustainable sustainability question in regards to the environment, but then there's a, s- a sustainability question that has, that has to do with finances and economics. And, and economics. When we started, I'd have to say our banking relationship had those same questions. And, and <laughs> at the time, what was interesting is that the second largest uh, uh, user of shipping services in the world, the second largest was Heineken because Heineken was distributing all over the world and the Heineken in the U S at the time, not met, not necessarily now. And I don't want to get myself in trouble here, but at the time came from Holland and they were shipping all over the world. And by the way, the, the first largest user of shipping services was the U S military. So, but, but the, the, the concept at the time too, was, was that here is a, a, a novel product, Again, let's go back to that, that 1970, 1980 period. You know, craft beers weren't there. Imports were, were, were the unique uh, flavor profiles that people searched out. And in 1986, 3% of all beer consumed in the U.S. was imports. 0.3% was craft. So that is a different era. But, um, you know, you, you're looking at the fact that... Um, how do you create products that are unique and then get them to market? Um, we were looking at the paradigm at the time of, of the, the major breweries weren't interested in, in having this huge bouquet of malts and hops and yeast profiles that uh, we were striving for. So, uh, so yes, the challenges of economics and, and transportation are huge. Um, so for us, you know, to back up just a little bit, yes, we're remote up here. There is no road in or out. The only way we get stuff is either by boat, as Wendy talked about on coming in and out on the boat line, or which is barge for us, or by air. And air is super expensive. So it pretty much boils down to barge lines, traffic back and forth. And it's a five-day voyage uh, to go from here down to Seattle. Uh, so we, if we get a barge once a week 
And unlike our counter, our, our brethren in the lower 48, if we blow it, <laughs> we're, we're out for a at week. least a week. You know? yeah. So it made us have to really think about planning and think about, uh, you know, preparing ahead, just, just as anybody up here in the last frontier does. But that's a unique a unique character. The fortunate thing is that water is the least expensive mode of travel. It's less expensive than trucking and less expensive, obviously, than air. Um, so that's not the most expensive part of our, our journey, but it, it, it does add a factor on there and it adds yeah. a timeline. And we were very concerned about uh, quality too, because as it's going down on the barge, we have to, we have to keep that beer temperature control, which once again adds another cost on there because you don't want it freezing and you don't want it baking either. So, and then even to drill down, even in the shipping annals of, of you know transportation costs, um, there's two modes of, of of shipping. One is container ships, where you look at the connexes, the 40 foot boxes that are stacked up in every port in the U.S. Um, that maybe people are aware of, maybe they aren't. They just look like the the box on top of an 18 wheel trailer, um, but. Um, there's container ships that would put those in the hold, and then there's barges. And barges then have uh, a much less expensive cost of transportation, albeit at a, at a longer time of transport. Uh, so when you're even dealing with shipping, our, our, our transportation routing uh, is less impactful as far as a carbon footprint, but that also mean that means that we had to be very very mindful on the uh, on the uh, uh, longevity of our product, the uh, the stability. So when I, it goes back to that CO two recovery. Really, in many ways, you know, we've always focused on how do we maintain the the quality of our product when we have these distance challenges. And so I think that also was one of those things that our environment where we lived focused our energies on to making sure that we did things. We did things with that mindfulness because we knew as we grew and we went further afield, we would be held to the same standard as anybody, whether it be down the street or in the next state or literally across the continent. So, so yeah. um, It's challenges. The, our location kind of focused our efforts yeah, definitely makes sense. Um, one more question. I'm going to pass it back over to Ken. Um, you opened your distillery back in 2019. Um, tell us what brought you to do that and how are your RTDs doing? Uh, we tend to talk about the market shifting towards that type of drink. Are you seeing that or just tell us about it in general? Well, 2019, we did, uh, we did uh, um, get a distilling operation along with... Um, the licensing, uh, but of course we know what happened in 2020, COVID, and everything kind of got weirded out. Um, and uh, but in 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 light of the fact that really this distillation is 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 really an, another step that requires all the brewing operations up to that point. So for us, it it made all the sense in the world to have that as one additional. Uh, part of our beverage trade. We did have to sit there and think about, because we had as part of our mission statement, 
um, producing internationally recognized craft beers, and we changed that to craft beverages. Because I would have to say that um, really the experiential hedonistic part of our lives has to do with the food and liquid that we consume. And we're a beverage manufacturer. We have all the infrastructure and the like, and there are things that we can do that, that, um, that it just, it, it was like in some ways, maybe a little bit, the industry was telling us there are other beverages that you have expertise in. And so we were aware we have to adapt and change. Um, much like seasons change, so do we, and we adapt. So uh, how are they doing? They're doing well. They're doing really well. Um, we just released them. Though. Yeah. They're, they're new. Um, we just got them out here in May of this year. So, And they're only in Alaska at this point. So we had a big learning curve, lots to learn. We weren't, we weren't uh, distillers uh, when we started. We're learning a lot, and it's a good thing. It seems to be very popular. But I'll I'll weave in a couple of threads here. Um, We're in the flavor business. So my goodness. Oh, my God. That opens up a lot more flavor. We have have huge opportunities to to, uh, express ourselves. So, you know, we we use – we tend to use less sugar by a long shot. I mean, we're we're at one-third – the bricks of most other, other, uh, RTDs, um, were, but we're using spruce, you know, we're using things that are, that are, that are unique to, 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 to maybe our, our DNA. And, uh, uh, is it, is it, is it fully developed? No, we're, we're not even in, in, into the adolescent phase of our distillation, uh, uh, growth. Well, you said you're a craft beverage maker, and the two things that I did not see – now, of course, we're not in Alaska, and we're not there every day. Um, I did not see any seltzers um, on your untapped page. Have you guys made any seltzers or tried doing any alcoholic seltzers up there? Actually, we have. It's kind of quiet, but uh, but not, not up here. We actually have uh, seltzers here that we have been selling for before COVID, actually. We, we released them right no, right, no, right uh, actually, wasn't right yeah, about then. I would say, well, it's been now like four and a half, five years. So yeah, uh, eighteen, uh, yeah. And that's something we're getting a lot of praise for: is those seltzers. They're made with spruce. A lot of them with the spruce tips and stuff. So they're and they're not as sweet, um, and people really love them. Uh, up here, we outsell uh, White Claw and uh, Truly yeah. in the, in the market. And people visiting have said, why can't I get these down south? <laughs> so, well, it's the proliferation of seltzers. There's just no space. So many seltzers. But Marcy mentioned the word sweet. I mean, our seltzers are zero carb, um, yeah. zero, z- zero carb, but the sweetness is a, is a flavor association with the spruce. So while, while we have a characteristic of being extraordinarily dry, as the seltzer typically is, there is an interesting uh, flavor association having to do with the berry-like characters that are innate to, uh, I think, that spruce character. And it's really interesting. Um, so I think that's one reason why we do so well. Um, 
but yeah, and and also I think to that that question, let me take another another step too. Is we are also you know we, we're playing with definitely uh, uh, the uh, non-alcoholic so, uh, sodas and the like. Um, again, we're we're focusing on l- low sugar, low 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 carb, but um, but it's all an exploration. It's all you know living on last you know living living the life on the last frontier where where we, we're kind of open to. Uh, trying new things. Yeah. Well, as we're seeing uh, the changes here in the landscape, what about non-alcoholic beers? Um, There are a lot of breweries like Brooklyn. Um, Obviously we had two roots here in Michigan, athletic, Uh, athletic exploded over the, you know, since COVID started. Um, Are you seeing a call for non-alcoholics up there? Uh, Non-alcoholic beers, beverages, uh, other than even beer? Not so much up here. We're typically behind, you know, everybody else. So, That's true. That's true. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. But uh, I mean, we do get calls for it, but not not a lot. And and the trick is, we think anyway, is to be able to make make the beer flavorful, and qual- the quality of the flavor is is what's important too. So to do it, it is what is a challenge. Accolades to those who are, are who it. are doing it, but um, no, we're not. We're we're focusing our efforts on the fact that we make beverages, and we're we're. Uh, I think we have plenty of horizons that that uh, have yet to be fully explored. Well, you don't want to spread yourself too thin and offer a little bit of everything. You want to make sure that you hone in on a ma- this pilsner. By the way, um, I haven't crushed a beer like this in so damn long. Uh, I was wondering where it went and obviously I drank it all. Um, so I, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, but as we kind of, uh, end the show, um, we'd like to end it with a little bit of high note, maybe ask you some fun questions, uh, get a little bit personal, not too personal, but enough personal. Um, so we're going to start with, uh, Wendy, Wendy, what is your final question for Jeff and Marcy here? Well, as I like to tell people to go on, take the cruise to Alaska. If somebody is in town for one day, where would you suggest they go and eat? Oh my goodness. Uh, Taku Glacier Lodge. Yeah. Very good. Mercy. <laughs> Taku Glacier Lodge. It's an incredible tour. It's a wonderful place. And, and the salmon that they cook is amazing. And you probably will see a bear at the same time. And it's an incredible, incredible story about a, and a place uh, that's really cool. A, and a place but it's an incredible story about an amazing pioneer. Her name was Mary Joyce, who basically did things that would would would, 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 would blow your mind today. Anyway, so it's uh, an experiential thing, both culinarily, uh, visually, because the travel out there is spectacular. And then the essence of the story really epitomizes what makes the last frontier. It's people. And that is one of the things offered on that uh, Juno Juno tour uh, thing you can win. So sign up. It is. I didn't get to go because I chose to go to the breweries in Juneau when I was there. So well, I visited not. you guys instead. We're, we're not going to be self-serving like yeah. we should be. Yeah. <laughs> Rob, what's your final question for Marcy and Jeff? What was the last board game or card game you guys played and who won? Cribbage. Was it Cribbage? It was Cribbage and I think he won. Okay. But I won the one before. So it's rematch time. <laughs> uh dan dan your final question for jeff and marcy all right marcy i'm glad you brought up bears i've watched plenty of shows like alaska 
Highway Patrol and shows like that. How many times have you had a moose or bear come into the brewery, and what did you do about it? <laughs> okay. Oh, let me tell you. Well, no moose. Okay. No moose. We're not in moose yeah. country, so that's so, good. Oh, that's one thing that's really interesting is because the, all of southeast Alaska was covered by glaciers, as they receded, uh, plant succession and animal succession has uh, kind of been dominating. Long story short is moose are starting to come into Juneau because the glaciers have receded long enough ago that they're finding it. And they're so, finding plant but, we may so, get moose, but not yet. Right so now it's we bears. we worried we worried about moose and no bears. sorry we we worried about bears and uh, I have to admit um, you know I had a rifle um, just in case because I was worried about the safety of my staff. Uh, it was a you know thirty odd six with a three hundred grain bullet, um, twenty uh, two thousand uh, feet per second type of velocity. Long story short, never had to use it. Glad, but we had a fence around the brewery. And a bear did get in the fence. And I don't know if you know what a crab trap is. It's a small opening into this wire mesh cage. The crab call, crawls into the only opening it can get into, but it can't get out because it's a small opening and it's hidden. Well, that's what happened to the bear. It got into the brewery fence and, and could couldn't get out. <laughs> well, guess what we had to do? We had to go out and guide the bear out. So bears actually have a, a, a reputation. They are very dangerous when they're scared or they're habituated in an inappropriate way to human activity. Our bears are not that way. Or uh, if they have cubs and it, they're protecting yeah, but, but they're protecting their cubs. Uh, now, granted, we still have people that don't do a very good job of, of guarding their garbage, and so they get habituated to being associating humans with garbage and that's bad but that bear was very happy that we gutted it out of the brewery premise it was, and it was fine and it was gone and wendy if you were in town if you were in town you may have even seen a bear in downtown because it's tipple to go pub crawling downtown and run into a bear on the street did, did you run into that there was not when i was there it it was raining really hard <laughs> probably just didn't see it you were running from spot it to could spot. be <laughs> Yep. Well, my final question for you, if you guys, uh, and this is the Royal you, those who are listening, uh, follow us on twitch.tv forward slash better on draft, kick.com, better on draft, Facebook, YouTube, all that fun stuff. Uh, a lot of chatting going on in Twitch, including everyone talking about uh, their first beer uh, and what people drank as their first oh. beer. I myself um, was probably a Coors Light person, even though I uh, grew up in Michigan. Therefore, we were probably more apt to drink Molson and Labatt when we had the opportunity. But Marcy and Jeff, what were your first beers uh, that you remember? Mine, I remember, was Lucky Lager. You guys remember Lucky Lager? And they had the caps on the bottles with the puzzle underneath. So you pop the cap, and then you had to figure out the puzzle was some kind of a little puzzle thing that that uh, it was it was fun. It was a great drinking game. <laughs> That's totally my kind of thing. <laughs> Boy, I, I, I have to, yeah, I have to say uh, there's like a, a number of beers that, that really were iconic to me. Um, but that's not the first beer I had. I have to say, oh my god, the first beers. Well, I don't really remember the first beers other than i remember i remember my dad was in the foreign service my dad was in the foreign service and so uh, i lived in berlin berlin germany uh 
1970 to 74, back in the Iron Curtain days. And I remember my dad being very appreciative of one of the people in the motor pool in uh, uh, getting our car to our house. So he gave him uh, a case of uh, an American domestic beer. And uh, all the German locals didn't drink it. (laughs) 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 So... So that 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 was iconic. That wasn't my first beer consumption, but it was one of those. Maybe, he was young at that time. Yeah, yeah. So he's a little but, underage. Uh, yeah, and yeah, I was underage, but at the same time, I you know I was of of beer drinking age in Germany. Young young beer they would have, um, but I would say the the things that really impacted me were uh, uh, Heineken Dark. Uh, I would, as a poor college student, I would get a Heineken Dark and and I would savor it. I was like, wow. The flavor, and again, this is this is pre, way pre craft. No one was doing anything. New Albion had to start. You know, I mean, I'm sorry. Uh, oh yeah, Fritz Maytag at Anchor was 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 uh, was was getting going, but um, but anyway, that was impactful. But one of the epiphanies I had when I was going to uh, Siebel uh, Institute for Brewing Science after my chemical engineering degree. Um, was uh, Chimay Red. A friend of mine gave me a Chimay Red, and I was like, wow. I... It was like unbelievable. New dimensions I hadn't even thought of that existed in beer. Now, sorry, again, throwback. This is 1982. This is way before... But anyway, that's that's my, my answer. Sorry about that, Ken. I rambled on. Don't be sorry. No. I, I think everyone, when they when they think about the one, the beer that there is their first beer, but the beer that started it all. It doesn't have to be a first beer, but it has to be, um, as, as Rom Thorne posts in, in our YouTube page, uh, like for me, Killian's. Killian's is the beer that makes people understand that there are other beers. So when when people talk about American beer, obviously the stigma is still always Bud Molson Coors uh, or Bud Miller Coors, not Molson. Um, but now that we talk about uh, American beers and American styles and the styles that we have continued to grow and progress, um, sure they might laugh at us for our thick lactose milkshake IPAs, um, but they'll still look at us and they'll be like, "Wow, that's a pretty good, you know, West Coast IPA." When we had um, a, a former a guy who used to own a beer store in Japan, um, they clamored for Stowe. They wanted the freshest stone that they could get. They love that West Coast IPA in Japan. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's important to always remember a little bit of where you came from. Um, and as you're going forward, Alaska Brewing, um, where are you going forward? Where are we going to see you guys? Where can we find you? Um, you're in 25 states. Can we order online if we're not in their states? Are you on Tavor? Where can we get your beer uh, nationwide? We are online um, through a couple of craft uh, clearinghouses, basically. So you go into beerfinder.com or beerfinder on our website, and then look uh, below. If you're not in the area, it says where to go. There's a couple of retailers that are listed that do ship beer. I think it's Craft City is the name of one of them, and there's another one, too. So there's a couple that are doing that. Uh, Hoping to get better at that, though. Right now, we're just trying to... uh, get all of our uh, shipping and distribution channels back in play. Perfect. That's alaskanbeer.com. 
Um, you guys are in Juneau, Alaska. Do you have any other satellite sites anywhere else, or is it just your your one brewery, and that's where we got to come find you and see you? That's it. Yeah. Come see us. We'd love to see you up here. It's beautiful here. We're having great weather, 55 degrees and cool. It's awesome. Hey, Dan, what's in Phoenix right now? Uh, it's about 105. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> We got a monsoon rolling in though, so that'll change. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great. All right. Once again, Marcy and Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. We truly appreciate it. Um, go find them, go drink their beer. Obviously, go drink one of my favorites, the Alaskan Amber, when you get a chance to go out there. And no matter what you think of your beer, we think it's better on draft. Have a good night. Absolutely. Cheers. 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 <laughs>